Today's scripture reading comes from James 3, verses 1 through 12 and 4, 11 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the town is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the town is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The town is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth water from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. In James 4, verses 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus, and let's turn together in prayer, shall we? God, we all come in here with stuff, stuff left unsaid, stuff that we feel that we don't want to pay attention to, stuff that we feel that we can't help but pay attention to, worries, anxieties, excitements, tensions. We lay it all down before you. We put it down at your feet. Not to distance ourselves from it, but to rest in your arms. God, we need you to speak. God, protect and guard my mouth from saying unhelpful words. Open our hearts to receive your word. And may we grow together as your people in greater holiness, in greater wholeness, knowing our delight is ultimately with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, um, I don't think it, it, it's necessary to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, some of our most damaging words happen on the internet. Um, and to prove a point that we already know, I'm going to look at just five really destructive conversations on the internet. Um, they're specifically Facebook, uh, quick little interchanges, but I just thought that they could maybe enlighten us or remind us today. So let's look together at the first one. There is no I in happiness. Someone responds, Jake, well, if you spelled it right, there would be. 
took a second there. I'm not a good speller either, so there we go. Number two, number two. When I die, I want my epitaph to read, mistakes were made. Evan, wasn't that already on your birth certificate? Oh, Evan, burn, okay. Number three, here we go. Maybe it's not always about trying to fix something broken. Maybe it's about starting over and creating something better. And that's why you have a younger brother. Wow, these are just sharp, aren't they? They don't necessarily make you feel good. Let's go on to the next one. Without the ugly in the world, there would be nothing beautiful. Response, thank you for your sacrifice. <laughs> All right, okay, tables were turned. And then lastly, and then lastly, here we go. It's hard to kind of see this, but people who think I'm attractive, it's a big circle, and then over there it says, my mom, so that's just blue, is my mom. And then the bottom it says, and that's not true, you know it from his mom. Um, <laughs> to the responses, thanks mom. <laughs> To which I'm sure what she meant was, you know more people think you're attractive, but still, that doesn't necessarily help the case on the online conversation. Now, some of the most destructive words are shared on uh, the internet. They're easily misinterpreted or clearly communicated in a quick way that bring destruction. And the moment we begin to learn even the most simple of words, like the word no in infancy, we know the power of words. We know that little words have a massive impact. Little words have a massive impact. I mean, words can make us laugh. They can fill us with joy. They can bring about exuberance and tighten relational bonds. Words can destroy us. They can make us cry. They can make us feel alone and separated from everyone. The old sages knew this well. In Proverbs chapter 18, we read that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. When the tongue is leveraged towards death, it stings. And those words, they stick with us, don't they? I, for example, I just want you for a second, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to think back to the last time you wish you could take words back. A text exchange, an email, an argument with a parent, a child, a coworker, a friend. Open your eyes. It doesn't take us but like a split second. I mean, the question is, which one do you want to remember, right? That's not if we have those moments that we remember. These little words have massive impact. And because of technology, our words go further, they go faster, and they stay longer than almost they ever have for a whole host of people like you and me. Historically, it was the very wealthy who could allow their words to stay to some degree and have a little bit of influence. Now everybody's doors are open to have their words stay and go further, faster, and stay longer. Which, if you're wise and you're curious about living the life God has called you to live, you're going to ask this kind of question. We've all asked this question at one point or another. How do I avoid, how do we avoid speaking words <laughs> we'll regret? Maybe it's before you go into the meeting with that boss, or you have that private conversation with a friend, or that intense conversation with a coworker. How do we avoid speaking words we regret? And it's harder, I think, now... And even in times past, because we're more polarized, we're more politicized, either trauma is taken so far that you can never say anything of constructive power in anybody's life, or it's so diminished that people care, you know, have absolute carelessness with their words. There's the element of online, you know, hyper, hyper hyperactive YouTube influencers that are looking you right in the eyes, right? Trying to cultivate intimacy, but they're full of rage. And so it begins to cultivate rage within you. I mean, all of these different factors that are empowering us 
to leverage our words further, faster, and to stay longer towards destruction. So how do we avoid speaking words we'll regret? Well, this is a question we're going to address because James indeed addresses it here. And so we're going to continue through our series, walking through this brilliant letter from James, the half-brother of Jesus, entitled Real Faith, because this is what he wants his people to experience, because this is where joy is. And today, we're going to see how real faith, real faith, how it changes how we talk. And it's going to lead to less regret when we talk. And not less regret because it's going to free us to say whatever we want. (laughs) No, no. Instead, it's going to actually shape our words, our postures, the way we talk with one another to be more like Jesus. Because when Jesus spoke, it wasn't always comfortable, but it always pursued life. And that's what we long for our words to do as well. And we have the opportunity to when we lean into it. So we're going to look at how real faith changes how we talk. And if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Because here's what we're going to do. We're going to work our way backwards, but we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at actually an area in our life, specifically as it pertains to our words, that we more commonly rationalize rather than regret. So maybe, just maybe, we need to expand the boundaries of what we should be regretting when we talk. Then we're going to see how we can avoid actually communicating in such regretful ways, and then a surefire sign that we are indeed getting to the heart of the matter, okay? And so in James chapter 4, verse 11, we're going to be working our way backwards, but let me give you a reminder of just where we are, the people who are receiving this letter, their context. So you may remember that most of these folks, for James, he's, he's writing to the broader, dispersed Jewish followers of Jesus who see Jesus as the true Messiah of Israel and now expand it to the world, And they're scattered across the Roman Empire because of the persecution that came in Jerusalem. And so now they find themselves in new communities, with new cities, with other believers that they haven't known. Whenever you're in a new spot, people are trying to figure out what? How do I fit in? Where do I belong? And it's in those spaces you have high conflict because you're like, do these people like this? Do they not like this? What are your personal preferences? How do I navigate? Where do I fit in terms of the leadership cycle of this community? And then on top of that, the rich are abusing the poor consistently across these communities. So that's causing conflict. You have some people who are sick and some are like, is this because of personal sin or is this because of something else? Then you have people wrestling through, well, this is what real faith looks like. Well, this is what real faith. All of this conflict for all of these different in, 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 inroads. And then James says, chapter 4, Verse 11, we read, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Do not speak evil against one another. I just found it fascinating when I was reading this. I was thinking to myself, wait a second, these are Jesus followers. We're supposed to be known for what? For good. We're supposed to be known for how what? We love one another. This seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Like this is following Jesus 101 in in my mind. And it should be one of the most humbling realities that when we read a verse like this, that the areas that we struggle with most are the most obvious in our lives, but we're just too blind to see them and too stubborn to follow them. These people aren't just like uniquely broken and they've missed this window and how they, no, 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 this is true of all of us. We need to hear this prohibition. And so, yes, it's obvious, but it's also obvious that they're not, not doing this. And so James leans in and says, 
don't speak evil against one another. Now, what on earth does this mean? What does it mean to not, this specific, these three words, speak evil against someone? Well, this broader range includes a couple things. One, it includes slander. Okay, are you familiar with slander? Slander is speaking lies about someone with the intention of trying to destroy their image, their perspective, the way that they are viewed in a community. Now, slander <coughs> can be taken up in a whole different way. It's like you can exaggerate like just a little bit and slander someone. Instead of them coming and talking to you about an issue, suddenly they talked really loud to you about an issue or they yelled at you about that issue. Most of that was true, but you've slowly painted a different picture of who they actually were in that space, huh? Exaggeration. Slander can be leaving out specific parts in the story in order to make you look a little bit better and them a little bit worse. Instead of them coming first crying and then feeling like you get into a wrestle, you just say, they came in and they stormed into my office. And slowly you leave out certain parts of the story once again in order to make yourself look good or especially in order to make them look bad. We slander way more than we care to admit by the small tweaks of retelling stories of others, even in close confidences. So, of course, speaking evil against someone else in this community, slander is a part of that picture. But it goes further than that. And, and it goes further than that. It also includes maliciousness. Now, maliciousness is the idea where you can even say really truthful things, but in order to destroy someone. Right? A malicious intent is that you speak at a particular time, in a particular place, in order to just run them down. So you may actually withhold. A, you know, a, a fascinating way to be malicious is to withhold compliments or encouragement right when they need it most and you know it. So they feel further alone. Silence can be malicious speech. Another way to be malicious is, yeah, you can say a very truthful thing that they may already know, but when you say it, you know it just dives deep, right? It's just saying that truthful thing right at that moment that reminds them either of a failure or a weakness when they're already at their wit's end. And so it slowly erodes. I mean, maliciousness. The goal is to destroy with our speech or with our silence or to control until we finally can get them to do exactly what we want. But it doesn't even stop there, interestingly enough. The speaking evil against one another isn't just slander. It isn't just maliciousness. It goes one step further. For the person of faith, it means speaking to another without any sort of category of charity. Having no charitableness in how you're speaking about when they're absent or two when you're with them, someone. You see, real faith understands this, and this is what James is getting at. Uncharitable words are the worst. Any sort of speech, or even nonverbals, especially nonverbals, in the midst of silence, that it's like, well, I didn't say anything mean. Oh, come on. Your body was screaming from the moment you walked into that door. I mean, I do this with my kids all the time. We're sitting at the kitchen table, and we have to do like two minutes of silence. It's like, okay, we're just going to do two minutes of quiet. Mommy and Daddy just need to breathe for a second. And then you see, like, two of my kids just like, mm, like right across the table. They're saying everything without saying a thing. Oh, but they feel fully clean. You know, I didn't say anything. Mm? Oh, but you're saying everything. Even as a pastor, like one of the gifts 
I have in challenges is everybody's got listening faces, right? I had a friend of mine uh, who listens to my sermons, and when she listens, she closes her eyes and puts her nose up, and I literally thought she was sleeping through the first year she attended um, until I started having conversations, and she remembers the sermon. It's just a way she, she cuts off all the other distractions to really lean into what's being said. And so everybody's got these different listening faces. Now, one listening face that I never get used to is the face of contempt. <laughs> because there are moments, whether it's an interaction we had earlier in the week or an interaction you had with someone else, and now I'm representing that someone else, or something I said in the midst of the sermon, and then suddenly a face goes from relaxed to eyes are big, eyebrows are up, leaned in. Oh, man, it's like they're, they're killing me a thousand times with their face. I kid you not. So I get to see this. It's wonderful. Um, we communicate. It's any of this uncharitable language. It's any of this words or posture or your nonverbals where you're just trying to run someone down. And there's no framework or breathing room for grace. Now, as soon as I start going this way, some of you may be thinking, wait, 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 Gabe. Is this tone policing, right? Well, I'm going to say this thing first. I'm going to say that if there is a part of your life that Jesus has no influence on, you need to be very scared. Okay, so that is not a good thing. So yes, Jesus has something to say about your tone even when you approach your enemies. Even those who have hurt you to the utmost. I'm not going to police that, but you better have Jesus' influence in those conversations. Now, there may be some in here who be like, see, this is exactly what I'm talking about. It's all those troublemakers who keep bringing up all the issues. They just need to be quiet. They're not being charitable enough. Wait, 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 wait. And these two folks tend to be on opposite ends of the spectrum politically and dynamically in conversations, just to be clear. The gospel engages both, of both extremes. I want to be very clear that the gospel does not say we need to be silent in the face of abuse. The gospel does not say you need to keep the peace at all costs. The gospel does not say, hey, when there's sin in the community, you, you just kind of need to back up. No, otherwise, James is breaking everything he's talking about here. Some of the things that James says are pretty intense in this letter. Rather, uncharitable words are words that demonize the other. They actually shave off the remaining human components of the other and treat them as someone who's worthy exclusively of destruction. And it's in those moments when we've learned to see someone as less than human that then those words that we speak, that we portray, whether in quiet or in loud ways, we rationalize them instead of regret them. For the non-religious person, per se, let's just start with two broader categories. The non-religious person might say in that space when justifying really uncharitable words, well, justice must be served. Why? Well, because I was done wrong, and if this is all there is, if there's no such thing as vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, if there is no final judgment then somebody's got to make this right. And you know what? I'm going to do it. It's with my words. Or with what I don't say. The religious person, so the non-religious person might ironically demonize the other person, right? The, 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 the religious person, are, are the, this is often our mantra or our rationale is, you know what? I just have a zeal for the truth, man. I got to speak the truth, the hard truth, even if it's really cold, I got to do it. They've got to hear the truth. Well, here's the deal. We actually begin to dehumanize the other person because it's all about your timetable when you feel like you need to speak the truth, not on when they are able to hear it. 
And it just becomes about you and your personal anxiety because you feel like God's not going to be happy with you unless you say it, so you try to get it off your chest. Or we just are covering up our own lens of revenge with this guise of zeal for truth. When in reality, we're going to get there, Charlie. Hang with me. So when you think about this, when you're engaging with human beings, I mean, psychologists have helped us here for years. You halt before you speak. That's an acronym, yes? If someone's hungry, they're angry, they're lonely, they're tired. If someone's hangry, yikes, right? (coughs) Bringing those together, because then it often often leaves them lonely, and then we all get tired. Now, but here's the deal. Think about, where is the person at? Like, religious folks, sometimes we just get so consumed in saying what we feel like we need to say that we're not being attuned with the person who's sitting across from us who needs to hear what we need to say. And what the Lord, what God needs to actually communicate to them. And being attuned to where they're at and what they're doing. And so, non-religious folks and religious folks, we rationalize all the way to Thursday as to why these intense words, these uncharitable words, are justifiable rather than something we should regret. And so we either dehumanize or we demonize the other. Now, why are uncharitable words the worst. Well, actually, James gives us two reasons, and I thought this was pretty astounding for me. You know, sometimes within religious circles or pastors, there's like a hierarchy of how many sins or which sins they talk about the most or which sins are the worst. Check this out when it just comes to uncharitable speech. Two reasons why uncharitable words are the worst. Number one, you act as if you're above God's law when you do this. Look with me, chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. So you become a lawless person who's arrogant over the law when you speak with uncharitable speech. But go, let's go one step further because we don't see that we're just acting as if you're above God's law. You act as if you're in a position above God himself. So look with me, verse 12. Look at this. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, i.e., not you, <laughs> not me. And so it becomes blasphemy. Uncharitable words are blasphemous. You feel like in that space, what you're saying and you're communicating is that surely there's no sin that's tainting my perspective. Surely I know all the facts in the case. Surely I know all that they are, and they are not worthy of anything other than destruction. Uncharitable words are arrogant blasphemy. That seems pretty high on list of brokenness. Wouldn't you agree? Like, James is not pulling any punches here. This is significantly disastrous for us as humans and for our community and is a complete affront to who God is and what he's doing in the world. Okay, so what do we do? Uncharitable words are arrogant blasphemy. That sounds great. So what do we do? Well, clearly, let's just follow the prohibition, right? Don't speak words of arrogant blasphemy. Simple enough. Well, how's the church doing with that right now? How do you feel like you are doing with that right now? in life. Not great, right? So what do we do? How do we then, let's go to the next part, how do we then avoid speaking uncharitable words we'll regret? How do we do this? Well, a lot of people will naturally go, and and sometimes it's even informed from, from James or misinformed from James, 
We'll go and we'll say, well, should I just then blame and tame the tongue? Is that kind of the next move here? And so we act kind of like Adam did with Eve in the garden. It's like, God, you gave me this tongue. I don't know what to tell you. It's unruly. I'm trying to tame it. But, you know, this is your design flaw. Um, What's going on here? And so you promise that you're just going to do better next time. You're going to work harder next time. You're going to hold your tongue. You're going to bite it so hard you might even bleed. You're like, I've got this. And this starts to lead down a path of just behavior management. And, and listen, in this, it's in these spaces around these sermons. Usually the introvert is laughing somewhere in the corner at the extroverts. Like, ha see, you just can't hold your tongue. And the extroverts feel like they need to be desert fathers and isolate themselves from everyone because they can't seem to keep their mouths shut. And everybody wants to cancel their Twitter account, which maybe is just a good idea generally. But (laughs) we slowly start to fall into this behavior management. If I just perform good enough, and then we start to think that certain temperaments are actually more gifted at this than others, that if I were just more introverted, if I were just... But the problem is, that's not the answer. The problem is that this is not a behavior problem. The problem is, this isn't a temperament problem. It's not just about managing what's coming out of your mouth. There's something deeper. It's not even just about the words that we say so that you can accuse one temperament more. It's about the words we leave unsaid, which then involves every temperament. There's something more going on in our passage that we need to see together. Because James, you know what he says in chapter 3? We read it. Your tongue is way too dangerous to tame. I mean, this is why he's like, listen, listen, listen. And I know we could do other tributaries of application out of this, but just for broader sake, he's like, this is why most of us shouldn't be teachers because there's a greater judgment. And we know this just broadly in life. If somebody spends their whole life, you know, saying, don't eat meat, don't eat meat, don't eat meat, and then suddenly you catch them eating a steak the next day, it's like, oh, what gives, you know? When somebody is teaching it strenuously a particular perspective and then they go against it, there is stricter judgment. We see that both here and earth, and then it also has eternal ramifications. Grace upon grace, yes, yes. I'm terrified, but also resting in God's grace about the reality about my role within the church community. But the tongue is too dangerous to tame. And then he goes through a list of these different kind of word pictures, right? He says the tongue is kind of like a bridle in a horse's mouth. This giant beast and that bridle can help guide. Don't you love the exaggeration of that photo? It's phenomenal. Um, Can guide this giant beast or the small rudder on a ship. No matter how big the ship is, that rudder, when designed right, guides the massive ship as to where it will go. And the tongue is like a spark. One email, one word, one small whisper in the wrong direction. And it can lead to a whole flame that destroys your life or the lives of those around you. I love the story of a gentleman who came to a rabbi and he's like, hey, I, I slandered my neighbor and I, I just want to make it right, okay? I, 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 I told some lies in the community about him and, and I, I want to make it, what do I do? And the rabbi said, I want you to go get a pillow and go to the top of the tallest building. I want you to cut it open and shake out all the feathers. And when you're done, come back. He's like, okay. So he goes and does it and comes back. He's like, I've done it. Now what do I do to make this right? He said, go collect all the feathers. Once they're out, they're out. And the destruction that they cause, 
I mean, the tongue is a very, very powerful tool. I mean, we've, we've tamed all kinds of animals and all kinds of beasts, but the tongue, just to tame it? We can't just tame the tongue. To do so feels like you're spraying perfume on rotten fruit, hoping that it'll still taste good. It's a source problem. And this is why James goes where he goes in verses 9 through 12. Look with me again. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. With it, speaking of the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He's pointing us back to the source. You can't have a fresh spring somehow producing salt water. You can't have an orange tree somehow and go to and expect apples and be ticked off that you found apples or you didn't find apples when you're looking at an orange tree. It's not about ultimately the tongue. So where do we go? Real faith understands something really important here. Real faith understands that we need to stop trying to tame the tongue and let God steer your heart. If you go back to two of those earlier illustrations or p word pictures he gave us, if you think about the horse, the bridle, yes, the bridle guides the whole horse, but there's still someone sitting on the horse or before the horse who holds the reins. If you think about the ship, and he even names the pilot here, there, yes, there is the rudder that guides the whole ship, but there's someone, there's a pilot at the wheel who's steering your heart is the one who also is directing the tongue. This is common Jewish indirectness. One of my favorite scenes from an older movie, Coming to America, is when two Jewish guys are sitting there at a restaurant with some soup in front of them, and the waiter comes up and says, hey, how's everything going? And he's like, well, taste the soup. And the waiter says, well, is it too hot? Is it too cold? He said, well, taste the soup. Well, is it too salty? Is it too much pepper? He goes, taste the soup. All right, where's the spoon? Aha. Right? Didn't just say we don't have spoons. It's this indirect path to finally get you on the journey to get to what he, and that's what James is doing. He's saying, listen, listen, the tongue is way too dangerous to tame. It's actually about what's going on in your heart. And letting God steer the very depths of who you are. This isn't a word problem. This is a heart problem. So no, no matter how many boundaries you put, no matter how much legalism you try to just tame your tongue, ultimately if your heart doesn't change, your words will be unruly. And so for many of us, our hearts, they're guided by wounds. They're steered by our fear, our insecurities, our broken desires. For example, if we have a wounded heart, it doesn't matter what anybody says around us. We'll use our words to push others away, to sabotage relationships because we don't want anyone to get close because they might touch where we're very sensitive. If we're insecure, we'll always be going around spaces talking about the things we've done or the other side subversive tactic is to tear down in just small ways that almost seem insignificant the other things that others have done just to remind people they're not that great either. What's going on in your heart? Who's actually steering your heart when in reality what we need is to be quick to listen, as James says in chapter 1, verse 19, but quick to listen to whom? To our gentle and lowly Savior, Jesus, who says you're loved and I call you beloved. 
to be quick to listen to our good father in James chapter 1, verse 17, whom every good and perfect gift comes from, such that even when we're in trials, as we saw a few weeks ago, we know that he's even using those to make us more whole. To be quick to listen to even the yearning of the Spirit, as we saw a while ago in Romans chapter 8, who's yearning deep within us, actually praying and interceding for our good. To hear our triune God and let him steer our hearts in love and grace. And then our hearts will go from restless, and our tongues will go from restless to restful. And actually speaking words of rest to those who are around us. I mean, is this not what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, when he's actually speaking about you'll know a tree by its fruit? Similarly, huh? James, the half-brother of Jesus, is remembering even Jesus' words from Matthew 12. He says, how can you speak good when you are evil? To the Pharisees. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James is remembering, yes, even his older brother's words here, and his guidance, and his wisdom and insight. So let me ask this. How do we know, like what's a surefire sign that God's actually steering our heart? James has hinted at it here in our passage. How do we know if God actually has the reins of our heart, if he's at the wheel of the ship and so directing the rudder? Here you go. When, when God, when your words consistently bless God and his image bearers, God is steering your heart. Isn't that what he said? How can you bless the Lord and simultaneously curse your brother? He's showing, hey, one of these are signs that the source is wrong. If you want to know who's steering your heart, your words consistently bless God and his image bearers. Those human beings that are around you, you see the image of God in them. And even when you're at odds, even when they feel like they're enemies, even when they've said things against you, you still see that they are image bearers and it shapes the way you talk. It's an insight that God is indeed steering your heart. Now, once again, that doesn't mean you'll never say hard things. That doesn't mean you'll never actually challenge a friend or a community member. The difference is, is how you'll do it and to what end doing it to build them up, doing it with the right relational pacing, and seeking to communicate in a way of love and humility, seeing that actually they portray God to you in the same way that you come with life for them. Such that when you speak to God, so let's just unpack this blessed language of God and his image bearers. We bless God that even while we're through trial, we communicate back to God in praise for who he is, trusting that, yes, he is indeed working towards that for our wholeness. That was, once again, James chapter 1. But when it comes to others, we never let ourselves get so far in our anger and our frustration that we shave off those human components and we demonize or dehumanize the other. They're always, always image bearers and so sacred individuals in which we are engaging which shapes what we say about them, without them there, and with them when we're before them. If your source is grace, then grace will be filled in your speech. If you're still trying to earn your place or feel superior, then you'll come with condemnation, demonization, and dehumanization. 
I'm going to jump down here, and I'm going to, I want to, I want to, I'm sure if you're anything like me, you're like, well, okay, so give me some helpful handles here on how to even grow in blessing these other image bearers, like making sure that my speech, yes, I want to communicate in love, but are there some helpful handles? Well, actually, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, gives us a window into what grace looks like when it infuses our hearts with charity toward the other. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So here's three questions. They're not going to be up on the screen that you can be asking of your heart as if indeed you're being directed in God's purposes. One, is it good for building up? That may not mean building up their (laughs) self-esteem, There may be a challenging space or a reorienting to what's actually happening in front of them. Is this building up? Now, that's obviously going to also exclude any sort of gossip or just spreading rumors. If we're gossiping or spreading rumors, does that build anybody up? No, it is intentionally designed to constantly tear others down. And what that really shows is that insecurity is driving your heart rather than God's love. Because you're trying to feel better. You're like reenacting Jerry Springer over and over again, where aren't they worse than me? Aren't they worse than me? They're worse than me. This is true, right? They're worse than me. No, we don't have to be that insecure that we're spreading further gossip or rumors. We ask, does this actually build people up? Does this pursue their good to grow up in the maturity of Christ? Does it fit the occasion? Is this the right time? This goes back to that halt, right? Is this the right time? Is there a right time? Am I the right person? (laughs) Maybe there's another person in their life who's more strategic to actually have that conversation for their good to build them up. And then lastly, does it give them grace? Does it actually pursue grace? Does it give something they do not deserve? (laughs) That's what grace is. It's not like, well, they're going to get what they deserve. No, that's not our framework as followers of Jesus. It's pursuing better than they deserve. So does it build others up? Is it the right time, the right place? And does it pursue grace in the life of the other? That's what it means to actually leverage our speech towards blessing others. That's what love looks like. And here's what's so fascinating. This is God's script towards us. He meets us when he speaks to us. It's for building us up. It's at the right time, even though sometimes he feels like he's going for a long time in silence. (laughs) He's waiting for the right time. And then it's intended to give us grace. This is God's script to us. It's how we receive his grace, and it's simultaneously supposed to be our script with one another. This is what it looks like to bless one another. And it takes effort. It takes spirit-empowered effort and the God at work within us. And the more we lean into this script, the more it comes to define us. So here's my question for us today. I want you to reflect on this. Who are your words being steered by today. When you think back to this past week, those office conversations, community group interactions, phone calls, texts, emails, conversations in private, who's steering those words? Are you a tributary of life, a tributary of death? What are your words revealing? Are you furthering gossip, which is really just showing the insecurities that you have rather than the life you have? Or are you pursuing at the right time with grace for the purpose of building up the other? Those words and presence, even though 
it's difficult to have those conversations. Now, if you've had just like the smallest ounce of humility, your first thought shouldn't jump to someone else. Me too. It should be first on me and my heart. I got room to grow here. I talk a lot. I was called Gabby by the person who used to take me to school in junior high and high school. And she would say, words are best less before 9 a.m., Gabe. You know? Um, who are your words being steered by today? Because you know what we need? Every single one of us. When we hear this and we do some genuine assessment, we need grace. Not condemnation. Not legal legalism. I'm going to do better. What you need to hear first and foremost is you need to hear that Jesus came and he lived and he died for you. When we engage in uncharitable words that are arrogant blasphemy, that dismantle the image of God in others and make a mockery of the God over the universe with speech. And he came and he died and he said, why? Because I love you. And I've done all of this because you're worth it and you're mine. And I'm going to give you everything. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Why? No, not because he had some really great practices set up. No, 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 no. Because his heart was full of love for you and for me and even those who crucified him. Talk about trauma. And the last words on his mouth were both a surrendering to his father and a forgiveness of the worst of enemies. That is what it looks like to follow Jesus. There's a lot of other narratives out there that are going to promise life and lead to death. That, and it's not just by practicing speech or controlling it better, it's by letting God steer your heart with love toward the other. Let that be your script. Practice it so that it becomes second nature. New nature, one might say. May God help us. Let's pray. I'm actually going to pray for us a prayer from John Bailey. He's got this brilliant little journal of prayers. And I just thought this one was apropos for us as a community. Oh God, you are our God. We seek you. Our soul thirsts for you. Our flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so we have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, our lips will praise you. How can young people keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long. Set a guard over our mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of our lips. Keep our steps steady according to your promise and never let iniquity have dominion over us. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Those who walk blamelessly and do what is right and speak the truth from their heart. Who do not slander with their tongue and do no evil to their friends, nor take up a reproach against their neighbors, in whose eyes the wicked are despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord, who stand by their oath, even to their hurt. 
who do not lend money at interest and do not take a bribe against the innocent. Those who do these things shall never be moved. Let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Amen.